This is the Stark Truth, hosted by Robert Stark. Brought to you by StarkTruthRadio.com. Robert Stark is an American journalist and political commentator. You can listen to his podcast at www.StarkTruthRadio.com. Uh, Robert Stark here. Uh, I'm joined here with Francis Nally, uh, and also Evie, who's never been on. He's never been on the show, but he's been a longtime fan. Uh, Evie, great to finally meet you, and also, also uh, Francis, great having you on too. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you both. I think initially, kind of came across you. Uh, you've said you've been like a longtime fan, and you've been in like various like these like group chats, but I don't think I've really talked to you that much until recently but you have you make these like fan art kind of videos like there's one of me one of luke ford one of jason Giorgiani on your youtube channel and there's like one of me it's kind of it's kind of making fun of me but it's like it shows me taking pills and it says i'm gonna burn in hell and it's kind of it's like you make these like parodies of different people you know and it's like also kind of like video collage art uh like pillator said it kind of it kind of comes from like ytm ytmnd.com of around 2005 or flesh world but if you want to kind of explain if you kind of want to t- talk about like i mean it's obviously not too serious but if you want to but it is cr- very creative but you want to talk about what you do with your youtube channel sure um j- just to uh clarify those were two separate videos the one the one where it was talking about burning in hell and stuff that one was a little, it came off a little more mean-spirited than I had intended, so I actually, I took that down. But the initial one where you were, uh... The truth where is you stark. Were popping, yeah, the, the the truth is stark. That's the one I liked, and that was done, as it says in the, uh, in the little liner notes underneath, it says, done with love, not malice, for the mysterious figure known as Robert Stark. Okay. But, uh, but, you know, um... Yeah, with the Suspiria music, the Goblin soundtrack. Uh, that that whole channel, uh, basically my YouTube channel, uh, the one you're referencing, is um, it's not a serious art project. It's really an inside joke for me and like 15 people. But yeah, um, I mean, I one do... of Luke Ford, and I forget what what he's talking about. But Luke Ford is talking about rape. Is that did you make that? That's something else. Not the big, that's something else, but it's, uh, I, I know what you're referencing. Um, this one, the one I made was called Eroticized Rage. Oh, that's kind of, right. Along the lines, yeah. yeah, Eroticized yeah. Rage. I wonder, like, if you saw my documentary, Supply, if, if that's yes, a good idea. Okay. I, I think I might have even gotten some footage from it for that to oh, splice right. up. That was a little while but, back uh, with Matt it was, P. With the three parentheses around it, which was pretty hilarious. But... Right, we we did it. We did a version, an edited version, to send to the Melbourne Underground Film Festival. We we removed the triple parentheses. We did that because Luke Ford used to do that around his name, but some people might take it the wrong way. Yeah, easily uh, taken the wrong way. But I mean, it's not to say that I don't put any effort into these things. But um, you know, a- anything I work on, 
I'm going to want it to be cool. But um, it's not like I spend an extraordinary amount of time editing these these works. But I'm glad you brought it up because it are is a you, part of. Are you an artist? Like, do you have other art projects going on? Yeah, uh, well, um, I am an artist. Um, I was a musician without kind of getting, without doxing myself completely, because I still kind of operate at anonymously in these spheres, or I try to somewhat. Um, I have, I do have a past in music. This is going back, you know, I'm in my late thirties. So this is going back. I'm a millennial. This is going back to millennial times. Would you say what kind of hipster, like indie rock scene? Very much so. In Brooklyn? That, uh, New Jersey, primarily, and, and yeah, the surrounding tri-state area. I was on, um, it depends on the project. I was in, I was in, um, I mean, you know, I, I'm a creative person, so they're really saved for the past couple years of my life where I have not been that active, where I've really been, that's why you see weird things like my YouTube channel popping up, because I don't have a real focus right now i'm trying to change that but i'm a father now and you know that's taking a lot of my time um but in the past uh i was always in different musical projects i was in metal projects like uh and a lot of the kind of like uh the indie scene really primarily and 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 i'm talking like um you know like signed to a label for a time and and was actually kind of making you know, not breaking even, making not not rolling in cash or anything. You don't roll in cash unless you're, I don't know, Lana Del Rey. But um, you know, make at least uh, doing it for real competitively. Is there? Would you say is there like a New Jersey scene? And it revolves. I think Francis could explain this better, but it revolves around certain people like we've had on and who he knows. But it's, it's sort of creative, but it's maybe vaguely like kind of loosely affiliated with the dissident right, but it's more, it's not really political, it's more like a kind of a creative scene. And Well, these days, these days, who knows what's going on. Yeah, if, it, if it's... Alex Goldstein. Yeah, Alex Goldstein, and maybe, would you say, yeah, he was my, he, he was my co-host a long time ago. Well, Alex Goldstein, his band was Harpoon Forever, and they later started Garcia People without them, and they just opened up for Pavement not too long ago. But uh, Goldstein, he's in the Rutherford area, but went to college in uh, New Brunswick. And there's a lot of interesting things that do happen in New Brunswick because that's Central Jersey area. The um, whole basement show scene, yeah. Right. Harlan Benison, too, was also on Stark Truth some time ago. But uh, I do think certain Central Jersey area, I wouldn't say it's dissident, but I would say there was an early current of Internet culture. Well, kind post- of a precursor to Dime Square, but maybe like Dime, sort of like Dime Square, but a precursor to it, and maybe like more more authentic. I definitely I think. Wrong. Yeah, I don't think that's wrong at all. Yeah. I guess I have mixed feelings about Dime Square. Like it is, I think it's a for, I think it's a force for good because you have people who are open minded about dissident politics and it attracts creative people. And it does give some degree of normie status, but there's obviously going to be like status chasers and people who are pretty much like generic hipsters from 10 years ago who are looking for a new niche. So I kind of, I've actually, I mean, I've been to events associated with some of those people. I don't think against them, but I guess my feelings about Times Square are kind of, are kind of nuanced and mixed. I would agree. Mine are too. I mean, 
people have a tendency to kind of wash up in in into Dime Square. Not I'm not talking about the the actual uh, people at the center of it, but maybe people on the periphery of it. And um, but it, you know, to get back to the New Jersey scene and kind of what it is, the essence of it. Um, this is going to sound like a throwback, but. I mean, like, to give you kind of an idea of the milieu I was in at one time when I was younger, um, I was on, I was, my band was in, uh, was signed to Eyeball Records, so I was kind of in that milieu, and uh, that, for those who are unfamiliar with it, My Chemical Romance's first album was, like, released on Eyeball. Now, I'm not saying we set, we weren't working in that genre of music, Eyeball has its, uh, tentacles in all sorts of genres but that underground that kind of level of underground where you could kind of jump off into uh jump off from there you know if uh the gods see see it for you but um it's changed a lot in the past 10 years i'd say i mean there's a huge jump between kind of millennial led oh yeah uh, because that's like all millennial culture and millennials yeah. are kind of approaching middle age, and then Zoomers are kind of doing something totally different. Yeah, yeah. Although you'll see echoes of it. Like, That's true. I mean, certainly. It's weird because, like, you think hipster culture is dead, but then I go to hipster sections of LA and I notice there's, like, Zoomer hipsters, too. Definitely. Definitely. I mean, you're always going to get that to some extent. And, um. Kind of like in I the past, that... like, there were, like, there were Gen Xers who were hippies in some cases, in certain places. Yeah, they weren't all post-punk anti-hippie, right? Right. So you say, you describe yourself more as like an apolitical like artist. With well, you're not really you're not really like super ideological. But if you want to kind of give like a brief introduction to your political and philosophical uh, background and viewpoint. Sure, um, I wouldn't describe myself as apolitical now, but um, most of my life. I was apolitical, um, even until uh, I sort of got in. I got into these dissident spheres in like uh, I'd say 2015 ish. It's interesting because you kind of got attracted to the scene. You could, I guess you could say it's alt right, despite actually being being more actually like you'd say you're actually more leftist. You kind of ended up being associated with like the, the dissident right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, definitely and. Keep in mind, I found figures like Pill Eater, yourself, and like Brandon Adamson fairly early too. So I was, I was able to justify it like that way as well. That oh, there's a cool avant-garde in this scene. You know what I mean? So, um, yeah, I mean, I I describe myself as I'm not an economics bro, so it's not like I'm a, a leftist necessarily, like autistically concerned with economics um so you're not like I, some I, like I, marxist ideologue you're just sort of like vaguely like left-leaning in economics yeah or, or a creature of the left i call i've called myself before in trying to describe myself to people or like um uh and i know this is kind of a bad word these days but uh socially i'm not exactly socially conservative in every you know way either at least compared to some of these guys who i meet these days in trad circles oh like you have the whole like the kind of the trad like third positionists who are like 
hardline nationalists, economically economically left-wing, but they're like hardcore social conservatives. So like you're so you're neither like an economic or a socially like right-leaning person. So what I mean what I guess so what is it what it is about it that puts you at odds with like the left and like the dominant kind of liberal society? Well, you know, the id poll stuff, um, I'm not anti-id poll all around. I think the future is going to be increasingly identity politics, but the anti, the anti-white the stuff was a turnoff. You know, that's going oh, right. to, you know, I, I don't like that. Um, I have a little white daughter that I'm trying to raise in this world, too. So, um, you know, I that was really what, uh, kind of kick things off for me. I remember in 2015, I remember like I had a little infant baby, so I had a lot more time on my hands. I was, uh, newly married at that point. And, um, and I was spending more time on like YouTube and I like discovered all these, all these figures and kind of the whole micro stream community, like the Luke Ford stuff. And that was a cool way to kind of be eased into this world this political realm. I, I remember coming across millennial woes and, you know, obviously Richard, this is the Richard Spencer era. Oh, right. Pre Fuentes. But yeah, so, I mean, that's sort of where I come in. So I'm, I'm, I'm very familiar with all the, the incarnations since. Even like countercurrents, like they are pretty like, like Greg Johnson's countercurrents, they are pretty radical and like racial issues. But I do think what's interesting about them is they had a kind of, like a right-wing kind of bohemian scene. And a lot of mm-hmm. interest in, like, culture and, like, really esoteric, like, esoteric thinkers and a lot of our artistic stuff. Yeah, I mean, I when I was first getting into this, I bought Greg Johnson's, where is it? It's on my shelf somewhere here. Uh, something about the, here it is, new right and the old right. You know, oh, I, right. I like some. I've seen that. Maybe, maybe I've seen like the article version of that. Yeah. So I mean, I'm not I, I'm not a regular reader of countercurrents these days, but I know Pill Eater follows follows them a little more. Yeah. I mean, he's critical. There's some like, drama going back, which we don't really need to get into. There was this uh, scene called like the left wing of the alt right or the alt left. And then the alt left kind of became associated with like the class yeah. reductionist left, and then like Trump Wait. used it to describe Antifa. But initially, yeah. I remember like there was a scene like Brandon Adamson used to have this website alt left dot com, which is defunct. I remember. Yeah, before Trump's yeah the left the left of the alt right. I remember it. I loved that, and I found that very early in my you know political. Awakening. Would you say do you do you identify with class reductionist leftism, or you would critique them for being redu- class reductionist, and they neglect um, like culture and identity? Yes, I would. I would critique them. Now, I'm sorry if I'm splitting my wires in some ways. It in some ways I'm kind of at odds with myself, but I'm certainly more on the culture side and the identity side. It maybe we sound kind of convoluted, but if you talk about like, but you could have like right wing and left wing like radical centrist approaches. Well, definitely. So uh, I would say that... like 
co-opt the avant-garde against, like, corporate liberalism, and then you would have, like, instead of, like, opposing multiculturalism, you would have a right-wing multiculturalism, which would include, it would have to be inclusive of whites, but it would also include, like, something like enclavism and be more pluralistic, and then a right-wing socialism to challenge left-wing socialism instead of capitalism. So it just means, like, investing in things that advance civilization rather than just bureaucracy, and then embrace things like urbanism, and which is, like, promoted by the left, but a positive, like, a positive vision for urbanism, and you can embrace, like, New Age spirituality, but but kind of co-opt that. So it's interesting. It's interesting kind of like dialectic. So instead of, instead of taking the reactionary approach, you take things associated with the left, but you re you rework them into something superior. Well, isn't that the job of the uh, avant-garde in any? Yeah. So path? like avant, so you basically say, it's a way to kind of fuck with people. So you say, like, I'm, I'm an avant-garde socialist multiculturalist. Right, right, right. Yeah, there, there's a lot of room to, to turn things on, on its head. And even if I, I see attempts at that, you know, in, in these spheres on Twitter and stuff, and I can get behind that even if I'm not the attempt, even if I'm not behind the uh, the mission per se. If we're thinking in that way, if we're creative that way, then 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 we deserve to be uh, to call ourselves an avant-garde. I mean, so much. Some of this is grim. Some of this, I see. You know, I see uh, one of the things I rail against uh, often is this kind of um, this kind of Fuentes Fuentesian kind of thing that I just don't vibe with. Uh, that whole kind of incel culture where it's just w w q w q all the time um i mean granted his mission is very different from you know mine if i were to have one um, you would like prefer like you prefer like the 2015 richard spencer to Fuentes by far in a lot of ways yeah in a lot of ways and spencer was interesting because he was he he was neither right. He was. I mean, if you want to say he was racist, okay, fine. But he was neither right wing on social issues or economics, and he was definitely more right. of a swipple who fit in with kind of like upper middle class liberal cosmopolitan aesthetics. He was not like not a conservative. Not at all. Not at all. And I I really vibed with that too. And when I saw that was, you know, keep in mind I was kind of newly um, politicized or thinking in political terms and uh that was exciting to see what was possible in that sense what was happening out there so and he's still doing his thing he's still out there but he has maybe a uh, tiny percentage of the audience he used to have since the uh, irony bro takeover you said you have a french mentality in terms of temperament and, and culture and philosophy can you explain that yeah well let me also say Philosophy would be misleading. I'm not a philosophy guy. I'm a psychology guy. That's sort of my, that's just kind of how right. I, yeah. So, and that's kind of very French too. Even their philosophers are a little like that. But, um, you know, like for instance, I mean, one thing I always say is like, 
there is no ad hominem fallacy. Um, like everything is ad hominem. Like that's it's everything is about psychology. But, um, but yeah, uh, French. I, I'm of French and Italian ancestry. So um, Ellis Island, kind of, my family came over here. They were not founding stock Americ- Americans, but. But yeah, like uh, very French, very French. I film is a huge interest of mine. Writing, um, kind of uh, bohemian. I'm I'm fairly bohemian. Now, granted, um, I'm also a functional member of society, especially these days. Maybe maybe I'm getting over my more wild days that I've lived in the past. Um, but I I. I have lived a relatively wild life. Tremendous ups and tremendous downs. So, With your culture and aesthetic preferences, you have a strong passion for avant-garde film. And then also, do you, but do you, but then also like visual aesthetics, do you have any strong like preferences for uh, visual aesthetics? Or you're pretty open-minded and eclectic in your taste. Yeah, I think we, you and I were talking about this in one of the group chats the other day. Um, I I don't even want to um I'm not so open-minded that my brains fall out. I have a very singular vision for my own work. But yes, I'm a very visual thinker. I'm a very visual person and um the film medium has always spoken to me. I mean, um I'm surrounded right now as we speak by uh like, my film. Do you film like the David Lynch like his visual aesthetics in his in cinema? Well, I, David Lynch, he's cool. Um, I mean, he has a very static, um, he doesn't move the camera. Um, That's true. He, he isn't the most visual director. I, I would look to the Italians, um, probably for more visual directing or, or even Japanese, um, or, or the French. I mean, French cinema, it doesn't really get much better than that, but, but, uh, I mean, I like Lynch. I like I, I love Lynch. He's he's and about just, mood though. Yeah, mood. But I guess films that are like surreal and aesthetics. Like I think eighties yeah. like eighties films eighties cinema is definitely goes for the whole surreal look with like different with like the coloring. And I guess like I think of like Schrader's Mishima Life in Four Chapters. I even did a Beautiful. painting inspired by that. Like that's a really aesthetic film. Absolutely, it it really is. It's uh, it doesn't really flow that well the screen the screenplay, but visually, that's what carries that film. Paul Schrader is a uh, he he's had a really interesting career. Would you say like so, sur- the theme of surrealism, where it's asceti- asceticism is like the emphasis on beauty, but just really trying to create like an eth- ethereal or otherworldly. Or hypnagogic like feeling in cinema. Hypnagogic. That's Hypnagogic, that's an in- right. That's an interesting way to put it. Kind of the. Uh, it uh, seems to be like <laughs> with that like like surrealism. It really peaked like in the eighties for some reason. Uh, I lo- like everybody's very quick to you know obviously David Lynch is our pop surrealist, our American pop popular surrealist. But, I mean, like, you're right. Uh, even, like, the films of Raul Ruiz, who's my favorite surrealist, even, well, aside from maybe, like, Bunuel or somebody. Um, and Raul Ruiz, 
unfortunately, nobody really knows about him because half of his films don't have DVD or Blu-ray releases these days. Um, so only like real nerds uh, know about him. But he really peaked in the 80s as well. Now, if you're asking like what is the what are some speculative reasons for that? Yeah, I would say like the right. I think it was the right balancing technology where there were advancements, but like every, but it was it was the right kind of this like Goldilocks zone where there were more advances in technology, but at the same time everything didn't become like totally digitalized, but also a kind of balance between like more cultural openness, but and openness and creativity, but then that kind of became a fad. I mean, technology is a big a big aspect, but everything in cinema feels so sterile today with like the CGI and just a lot of it just has to do with technology. Yeah, but also you're... like true with, with a lot of like, also with like horror films too from the era. Well, the horror film, unfortunately, I mean, we see some cool things, you know, a 24 is interesting. I know they get a lot of, a lot of uh, praise. So I almost don't even want to concentrate on them, but, um, I would say technology, like you said, I think also because as we were moving into the eighties, that was the end of the, uh, the kind of director led era in mainstream Hollywood. And it was kind of going into its, uh, corporate model that we're so familiar with today. So there were these outliers, these kind of bad boys of cinema operating on the outskirts, not within the studio system. And they were surrealists, so it was kind of a rebirth in that way as well. And then with with architectural or artistic aesthetics, you don't really have a strong like prejudice or bias. You just you have pretty eclectic taste in aesthetics when it comes to visual art and when it comes to architecture. Yeah, like I'm not going to make a statement like I don't like brutalism, like because there are so many exceptions to that. And, um, you know, but I love Gothic architecture. So, yeah, I, I hate to make sweeping statements about stuff like that, at least. There are, like, the trad types who are really rigid about architectural aesthetics who hate any modern architecture. But there, on the other hand, like, I didn't notice, like, the alt-right really embraced, like, retrofuturism as an aesthetic, which is good. Yeah. Yes. Um you know, I still haven't read that Guillaume Fay book, that themed uh, book, but I've been wanting to. Yeah, I've heard. I haven't read it either, but I'm not. I'm not sure how much it really goes into, like the Art, aesthetic right. or built space component. But I should. I right. should read it at some point. I've been putting that off. Do you believe that beauty is objective or subjective? Like, is there a hierarchy? Ooh, God, you're hitting me with the hard ones. Um. I'm willing to operate within social constructs, even if I'm maybe a postmodernist in the sense that that I'm willing to kind of uh, flip flop and 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 want to say everything's subjective. But I'm perfectly content to operate within social constructs that I myself like, while realizing it's a social construct if that makes sense. So I'm going to say, I would say beauty is subjective. However, I have my, it might as well be objective because I have my opinions and feelings on the subject. 
that makes sense. Yeah, I think I mean social contra- social constructs. There's nothing wrong with them. Right. Right. As long as you have some aware- awareness of it, but there's there's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing inherently bad about it. Uh, would you say right. that the Philistine who hates art and high culture are they the true enemy? I agree. Pill Eater's been pushing that lately. Yeah, and he's I, been pushing that. I wrote that in the. You wrote outline. that in the outline, right? <laughs> so and, and there's something to that. There's something to that. I mean, me as, I mean, I'm an elitist. I, I, I am. I, I would be lying. I mean, my friends call me a champagne socialist, and I lean into that. I actually wear that as a badge of honor. I'll yeah. advocate socialism while talking down to the prole. But, like, you know, it is what it is. I do. I have bumped up against that my entire life. So I did vibe with that when Pill Eater was talking about that. It was interesting because yeah. Alan... Alan Watts said something interesting. Uh, he said that the French valuing the, the French placing a strong value on aesthetics as a principle uh, that they're actually because the French are true materialists. The Americans, have, well, the Americans have this weird like Gnostic dualism about where materialism, where they're materialistic, but they also have like this religious dualism where it's kind of dirty. So the aesthetics become like low quality because they they have this kind of like uh, they almost view it like idolatry. That's what Alan Watts said. Do you view aesthetics in material materialistic terms, or do you think that there is like uh, a spiritual component? I'm going to venture to say I see it more in spiritual terms. However. Not in that typical American, um, real, real kind of bogged down in Christianity sense, a dualist Christianity sense. Um, and again, to the extent that's possible, but at least my feeling on my feeling about it is that it's a more mystical kind of feeling about it. That's how I would describe myself anyway. So not, well, yeah, like. Aesthetics, like, it creates an ethereal aura, so you can... Yeah. There's, like, this dichotomy between cultural and economic elitism. So, like, you say you're, like, a champagne socialist, and it's kind of ironic because, like, I'm very much, like, against the liberal order, but I have the same time, like, being, being like, the irony is, like, being culturally elitist but economically populist, like, you end up, ironically, having more in common with like more bohemian people uh, on the left than you do with a lot of conservatives. But I would say like, because economic pop, because like MAGA, like MAGA, MAGA populism, a lot of it is like, it's culturally pro, but economically it's fairly right wing. And like the, you see like Trump cutting taxes of corporations and the wealthy, but a lot of the populism is actually like cultural populism rather than economic populism. So it is ironic that if you're, like, an economic populist, but cultural elitist, like, you ironically, like, even though, like, you can detest, like, the liberal establishment, you ironically, by that, you have, you end up having more in common with people on the left, even though that does apply, did apply to a lot of people, like, on the alt-right. But I would just say, like, fundamentally, is, like, fundamentally, economic elitism is an enemy of cultural elitism, and culture, and economic elitism 
tends to have like the outcome of like cultural egalitarianism. Well, so, that's like, the sort interesting, of what the, like the dichotomy is like how capitalism versus left wing uh, economics, like how it relates to dichotomies, like about culture, cultural elitism. The whole MAGA communism thing was an attempt to kind of culture jam uh, that that tendency that you're kind of talking about and kind of turn flip it on its head um, to to you know who knows how successful that was. I did think it was interesting in that sense, though. Um, but yeah, I I personally I'm more interested in culture. Economics was kind of an afterthought for me. All that stuff you know that I was saying in the beginning. All this kind of um, posturing, uh, left, right, even even kind of labeling it that way, calling myself a creature of the left is a kind of. I, I mean, I think it's a it's a correct way to to describe myself, but it's a posture. It is a posture, and it's it's derived from my my culture cultural elitism and my sort of being hyper focused on on culture and because the that's way really... I guess the way things work is because capitalism is culturally egalitarianism because if you want to make the most profit you have to sell to the most people because there is like the small elite group who have the best culture and aesthetic sensibilities the most creative because there's less people out there like them it's harder for them to become economically successful so that's the dichotomy well, I think we're approaching, even in kind of like, let me use popular music as, as an example. I think we're kind of approaching an aesthetic sophistication, even in popular music. I think music is, is one realm that kind of differs with other mediums. Um, I don't see like other, other mediums I see we're kind of, we never got past. I don't think we were, we're truly doing anything new, uh, that the boomers, the the kind of boomers haven't done thoroughly. We're kind of doing iterations of that over and over. Even even the uh, return to kind of traditional values is the kind of play on that. Um, it's not really getting outside of that that net. Um, however, with music, I I think that's the one you know place in art that. I'm seeing. I don't really know how to articulate it yet, but I've been seeing it happening, and I think it's kind of exciting and worth mentioning. Oh yeah, and I think what's interesting is like you talk about like I think like a lot of like a lot of like race like if you take an issue like like racism and like what drives a lot of like dissident right politics, a lot of it is like aesthetically driven by. And sexually driven by like, aesthetic preferences. So you have Pillar here has like Asian Arianism, and he's basically basing his political philosophy. I don't know if this is an exaggeration, but on his sexual desirability and a lot of like the distant right, they view they view like being blonde, like the blonde kind of like Aryan or Nordic look as the ideal, and they want more people like that, and they channel them to politics. So yeah, like there is this like sexual component. Basically, like people want more of the people they find sexually desirable. But the thing is, I actually my my stance on this is I think it's better to just be honest 
about that and just say that, then try to sub- sublimate that into reactionary politics. Like, or to, it's unhealthy to put like these subconscious desire, the subconscious desires into politics without without like, really being honest and direct about it. So, like, great idea, like racial preservation should just be explicitly like an aesthetic issue and not instead of not endlessly going on about reactionary views ranging from like conspiracy theories to obsessing over all these just very statistics to like embrace like sexual racism on aesthetic grounds on aesthetic grounds is healthier than sublimating that into reactionary politics because basically all politics is about posture but the underlying motives are are subconscious uh, psychosocial and psychosexual uh, desires. Yes. Yeah, I agree. And politics as posture. And um, there is a power to what you're saying about, you know, why don't why don't you just out with it and be forward? Well, that's what Pilater does. Like, he finds, he has, like, a fetish for Asian women, so he wants to build, like, his Hapa ethno state and call it Asian Aryanism. And he's explicit about that. And like the same with like the alt-right, like the blonde Aryan woman in like the wheat field is it is using, at least like they're using aesthetics to put an image of the society they want to ideally live in. But I, I mean, it shouldn't be, I mean, the left is going to shame that as like bigotry, but, but the problem with the right is that they're not, they channel it into all these other things that are total distractions. So just, Okay, fine. Like politics. I mean, politics should be about aesthetics. I think that's one component. But also, like, be honest. Be, be, people should be more honest about like the psychosocial, psychosexual dynamics as well. But I do think right. like politics should be should be about aesthetics. Well, I think uh, at least in the past, Pilater would have taken issue with with the uh, word fetish. And I think well, he's what here, he Pilater. Talk- yeah. Any objective to how I described your ideology? I think that's totally accurate for someone who's normal, liberal, politically correct. Um, though I don't want to play word games here, but the word fetish is interesting. little digression here. Fetish also means to give power to something. It's not objectification, like an object-oriented ontology. That's what I was going to bring up. It's not right. necessarily objectifying something. And the thing is that the word fetish is a type of irrationalism because liberalism is about rationality. But it's not about sincerity. It's ironic. It has to be outside to always observe. So to be irrational means you're not in liberal power or liberal choice, which sounds kind of ironic because liberalism is about the ideology of individualism and not so much the power of choice. And so liberals get upset when people have sincere convictions. So they call things fetish because it is they think it's irrational when preference and desire is a rational Thing. And you would agree with the statement that that it's just we. You should, I think people should just be upfront about about all that. I mean, I mean, yeah. Well, if you don't know Douglas Kim, he is this bizarre CPI member, Korean American, who blames a white male Asian female as a form of imperialism and uses tanky communist rhetoric that if we got away the supposed menace of white male, Asian female, and replaced it with poetic justice, Asian male, white female, supposedly communism would rule the world and fascism is an embodiment of white male, Asian female. But like what Robert is saying, this is basically 
rhetoric to justify hatred for white men and for some weird niche ideology on incel motivations. So if Rhinzomic happenstance of Douglas Kim is plausible, then a Rhinzomic happenstance of being a white nationalist into My Little Ponies is all plausible. Therefore, we must respect all outcomes. Um, I mean, I certainly I get where that's coming from. I think I tend to do that automatically. But um, I think we're seeing a lot of, in general, a lot of specifically Asian male meltdowns in current liberal society in competition with this. That's the other angle, I think, that there's one angle is people visualize they have like their sexual ideal and they want more people like that and then that's channeled into politics and I think there's like psychosexual there's inter intersexual competition between different ethnic groups over over women and I think because it because saying just saying so it signals either bigotry or it signals like having a low social status so it's so it's channeled into other things so there's like here's what Pillager is talking about like the Asian male resentment is channeled into more using liberal arguments rather than just being blatant that they don't want white men to take their women. So you're saying... Right, yeah. Let's dress it up in Marxist terms in the CPI uh, case uh, example. And yeah, that gets really tiresome. It is signaling, it signals a low social status, but I would just, but I, but part of me is just saying I wish people would just just be honest about it and it shouldn't be there shouldn't be any moral stigma but that's obviously not going to happen like well that's the trick i mean one-on-one i mean i i psychoanalysis could cure all in some ways but um or have that uh it's like the whole thing like the woke it's weird because like i wrote an article about this like the woke idea of implicit bias is like on one hand it is anti-white but on the other hand, it is kind of true that people people's in, implicit subconscious biases influence everything. And I kind of like, I don't know if, I mean, in general, I prefer Jung to Freud, but actually there is some legitimacy to like Freudianism. I think people should just look inward and figure out what their subconscious biases are and just sort of, just sort of like maybe manage them better, but. Yeah, so the whole idea is like you have like well the demo you on one end you have like the the demagogic populist who exploits people's like subconscious desires into like their own their own agenda, but then the other extreme is like you have like the liberal rationalist who tells you that like your intuitive subconscious desires are something that are me that are in, that are illiberal and dirty. So I'm really just think people should should just sort of embrace embrace these kind of motives, like so. It includes like a number of things. It includes like, and it does relate. Oh, this does like relate to things like like race and sexuality, which are like the two big taboos. But people need to be honest, at least honest with themselves. Definitely, there's also, I mean, especially when it centers around you know race and stuff like that, it's going to get touchy. But I mean, these are feelings based things and and well, they're you know, shaped they're shaped by evolution and evolutionary psychology so they, they shouldn't sure. be dismissed sure sure evo psych is is a thing um i tend to kind of actually downplay some parts of that however um 
uh, people don't like people aren't comfortable with their feelings in general, and I think um, I think a, a, a real emphasis of mine as well is maybe sometimes getting into those those places that we don't feel as a society um, too. Hopefully, people that would... feel like people feel guilt about like a racist thought, or people also feel like guilt about like their sexual fantasies. Well, definitely. I'm not sure we'll ever conquer that completely. But... No, definitely not. Well, certainly in in the realm of ideas, like when we're all, I don't know, on these on Twitter and stuff like that. I guess everybody, I guess it's a. Uh, this constant pursuit to have a take and this ever growing pursuit to have an ever growing amount of novel takes. That's kind of the game. But like, at least, you know, when people are groups of people are talking to each other like this, um, maybe that's the best we could hope for is people being honest in that kind of uh, environment, but, and with themselves, like you said, but, I don't know. I mean, in a public-facing kind of environment where, you know, we're trying, where it's performative. I think another, another example of this is, like, conservatives support, like, right-wing policies that, right-wing policies, like, right-wing economics that screw over, that end up screwing over, like, working-class whites because they have, like, a, because they do have, like, a racial motive that they're, that they that's so taboo they can't be honest about it. Oh well, the GOP is a whole different story with that. Yeah, yeah, I mean, for they're, sure. There, uh, I mean, even in the dissident realm where we are bringing up these, where we can talk about race, um, we're we're even kind of posturing in all these kind of weird ways. So imagine what the, you know, the GOP is a hundred times worse, uh, or I won't even say worse. I would just say different and maybe even more goofy in the way they do it. Cause yeah, I actually do think, I think like leftists are correct that, that a lot of white people do have like subconscious racial, racial motives, biases. Definitely. I mean, every, I see every, it everyone e- does because no, there's no, no one is like, it's naive to say you can be like totally colorblind. That I I've never in my experience I don't think I've ever I I don't buy it I don't buy it personally color blindness is right wing moralism as bad as left wing moralism yes at least in the in the ways I've seen it manifest the kind of uh they both have their moral like hysterias. Certainly. I mean, the satanic panic that we're kind of reliving now, that happened in the 80s. Uh, I mean, people would call me uh, blue-pilled for even calling it that, uh, you know, in the trad cap spheres. But, I mean, I, I'm culturally Catholic. I was raised in a Catholic family. I'm French-Italian. I mean, I, I like church. I push. My, my daughter goes to CCD, but, you know, I'm not a an especially devout Catholic, um, but yeah, we see a lot of. I think we're rehashing the '80s in a lot of ways. It's almost kind of uh, quaint to say so. Yeah, for sure. Do you have like thoughts on like the philosophical question on human nature 
and like the debate between like Desaad or Nietzsche on one end and Rousseau on the other, and like human nature, like whether there's a consistency, because logicians never, they never really can make sense out of people, and, but yeah, like you would, you would also say like philosophy, it does have to be based on intuition and experience, but if you have thoughts, like this thoughts and like the question like on human nature, and if there's any way to, you can't really, you can't really like, it's just too chaotic to really try to like put it in a box. Yeah, the yeah, the, the uber philosophy broism is not my bag. Um, you know, teleology and all that, all that stuff. I, it, it's like what you said. Intuition is a strong philosophical binding. I think intuition alone, almost uh, going out and winging it. Uh, stuff like that would be kind of my philosophizing. But I think uh, the the book reading in the philosophy realm, I haven't done a lot of. Um, I'm told I'm told by guys who have done a lot more philosophy reading than me that I'd be kind of maybe new Hegelian in some ways and certainly postmodernist in other ways, maybe in like a there's even some Judith Butler that I vibe with, believe it or not. She's actually fairly reactionary in some well, surprising ways. Because both like the vitalist on the right and like the kind of hippie new age lefties, like both believe in intuition. But I guess there is like but like the rational the rationalist types, they definitely think they definitely downplay it or they reject it even. Mm-hmm. And there's also, I mean, there's someone's rhetoric and there's what they really do too. Um, it's hard to say. It's hard to say. So what do you mean by uh, elf idealism? That's something that I think Pilater sent to me in, in an outline. Interesting. Elf idealism. I'm actually unfamiliar with the idealism oh, part, but I maybe that's more Pilleter's piggybacking. Yeah, on, that's. On, I, I have. It, yeah. Well, it's the but elf. Yeah. So you can explain what elf is in an ideology of the elf. Yeah, sure. Um, as goofy as this may sound, because it's going to kind of sound like a this doesn't come from like a Lord of the Rings Tolkien fan base type place in myself. I have just always kind of um, uh, girls resemble elf to me and i i i I purposely say elves and not like elves because elves sounds too too tolkien and i do a a kind of a purposeful low english version of it which is elves because it just sounds funnier but um i'm i'm very pro female i don't have these hang-ups um how do i say this with without coming off like i'm talking down to people um i've done fairly well with women in my life you know um i don't have that kind of incel core mentality um and that's actually one of my biggest my biggest qualms with these dissident spheres these days uh now the term is rad femme the whole rad femme thing came into uh fashion but before that you know i was just I, I don't know what you would call it, but now nowadays I say I'm relatively pro-Radfem. Like, because I can kind of... 
I I can see things their their way, and I don't have the same hangups. I'd say that a lot of other men have, and and I think it's a very widespread thing. Uh, I'm not even trying to give too much of a value judgment to it. I mean, I'm very critical of it, but like I'm not an enemy of men. I am a man, but you know, so it's it's very strange learning it, it kind of blindsided me when i realized that i would say even 90 percent of this stuff isn't about race it's about wq for most guys in dissident spheres so you you generally like you really you strongly like dislike the manosphere is it and that whole scene is it that you disagree with their fundamental like arguments, or is it more that you think the scene is like totally cringe, like how they present themselves? It's not just surface level stuff like that, although I think it is cringe. Um, I listen. I'm not out to to make fun of a guy who went Megtow because he lost everything and he got screwed over in court and he can't see his kids or something. I'm not against that guy. I'm against like, like the grifters. I guess I, yeah. Incel grifter types, uh, Fuentes stuff. Um, I think gender warring, I'm not saying, I'm not even saying don't gender war. I mean, some of this has to be, uh, I think the issues that. have to be discussed. Yeah, yeah, so that's, openly. That's one, that's one thing. But uh, I guess the ways I've been seeing it go down is pretty. I don't know. There are very few manosphere talking points I vibe with as a man, and I am not a. Uh, like I said, I've had plenty of uh, experience in this realm, and um, I'm not really passive quote i'm not the passive one in my own relationships so i mean i'm i live one way and i i just haven't had these these troubles that a lot of these guys seem to talk about and i think it actually comes from a lot of what i see in the manosphere realm in general is like hypothetical outrage these guys whipping each other into frenzies about things they haven't experienced firsthand. They've, they're reading, you know, Twitter comments about someone else, presumably somebody else's experience or some fiction about an experience. And it gives the kind of impression that both sides, I mean, the men and the females, I've seen some of this on the female side. I think too, one, but, like one angle of this is because, because people are atomized then the sort of these online narratives like to take over. So a lot of people do, I mean, sure. I don't want to like moralize it because a lot of people have had a, had a pretty tough situation in life and they're right. They're, they're right to feel angry or resentful, but at the same time, I guess the problem is because of atomization, people allow these online narratives to take over when they're like, even if there's truth to it, there, there are downsides to that as well. Absolutely. And I mean, yeah, it's about technology, ad- increasing atomization and uh, echo chambers and, and how that kind of functions. And I'm not necessarily proposing some way out of this. I'm not sure what to do. I mean, I guess Kaczynski proposed some ways out of this, but 
um, you know, here we are. We're here, and this is what we're dealing with. And I'm in my late 30s, and I'm thankful in a lot of ways that, you know, I, I grew up when I did. But at the same time, by the same token, I tell a lot of guys who are younger than me, it's not all that different. I grew up, the Internet was raging at the time. It was an earlier Internet, but it was I think was you're function- probably about the same age as me. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And um, so you know what I'm saying. I mean, people kind of have this well, idea. Was, we were seeing, like, the onset of these trends, but I think they really, like, accelerated in the 2010s. Sure, sure. And that's Maybe, when like, I was... the, like, the zero zeros, there was probably, like, there was still more people doing stuff IRL and, like, more social capital. Though, like, I lived in, I lived in L.A., so that's a pretty crazy place to grow up. Sure, surely. Um, I mean, I'm uh, on the coast as well. I mean, New Jersey, very close to New York City, kind of in the shadow of New York City, coast, northeast coast. So there's probably a lot of similarities there. But I, I, you know, it was the same things occurring, just kind of an earlier iteration of them. So I like to kind of keep focus on that with, with, with younger people. It kind of goes back to like the the dialectic I mentioned earlier, and it's kind of my my own unique philosophy where you have like the liberal who tells you that the liberal will tell you that you're like a racist and a misogynist, and then the demagogue will try to they'll try to exploit those sentiments you have to fulfill their agenda. So I think the solution is to just sort of tell them both to kind of fuck off and then just be. Just try to just try to figure out like a more honest is honest assessment of reality, and ironically, I, I maybe I am kind of becoming ironically like that is sort of becoming like a rationalist in a sense, which is ironic. But I think that's the way you have to do it. Just try to create like an an honest assessment uh, of reality. I think another thing. I think one of the main underpinnings to what I find off-putting about maybe this this incel culture is um, I mean, you should, you should fear a man who feels inadequate in some ways. I mean, I'm not conflating normal. I don't think people should be shamed about feeling that way. If people have had a rough, if someone's alienated and had a rough time in life, I don't think they should be morally shamed. That's that's not what I'm saying. I'm not conflating normal insecurities or hat or whatever path you have led. You know, that's one thing. And talking about it, like, and being up front with that, like, this is who I am. That's one thing. I'm talking about when it's feeding on each other and when, and I'm speaking of inadequacy as a constant disposition. Like, it almost becomes your identity. And in a group situation, when that feeds off each other. Right. That, that's just a toxic feedback loop. It's unfortunate. I'm not even necessarily blaming the guy in the middle of that. But that what's occurring there is not good. They're called the cult, more the culture, not the individual. Right. I think one other right. angle about the manosphere that's interesting, because on one hand, like you think of the dissident right as being pretty racist and anti-black, but I think one thing that's ironic is that the manosphere, their their idea ideal of like being alpha, they they actually do embrace like black masculinity 
as opposed to a more like aristocratic ideal, like a aristocratic European ideal. Absolutely. They, they see, uh, they're kind of, uh, you know, a young man, let's say he's had no experience. He sees a black guy talking about, you know, I smacked this bitch, blah, 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 blah. That's going to be a stand in, you know, that could look very appealing and be his kind of stand in for, all right, that's masculinity. And, you know, Gen Z, which is already swamped in this kind of, you know, hip hop culture and stuff like that. I can see that. It's being interesting very because, like, the, the left wing says, like, woke and the right wing says based. And those are both, like, black vernacular. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there is that, too. I mean, in general, I think this, uh, we're in a kind of toxic brew right now, aren't we? There's a lot of things that had to line up. And it's postmodernism where we're right we're right wing traditionalists, but you incorporate aspects of pop culture. That's like peak postmodernism. That sounds based. based and I, again, in, like, uh, I'm not opposed. Again, I'm not. I'm not even opposed to that. I think I like the idea of like borrowing from from pop culture, modernity, and then seeking to like build something concrete from that as long as it's a good quality i'm not even opposed to that quality and real yeah do you think the manosphere has has a, a kind of a black mentality about about oral sex yeah <laughs> i think you were were you saying you must have been saying that in the chat and i wrote I, I wrote an article actually that article the political philosophy of oral intimacy if you saw it but it's interesting I, i'm gonna have to I, I missed that one, but I'll, I think I'll definitely Francis read. read it. Yeah, I, I I liked it. That was really interesting, more articulate than Blowjob but, King, for sure. Yeah, <laughs> like the, the a lot of a lot of right wing men have the same mentality. I don't get it, man. I am pro. Uh, like I said, I, you know, when you're when you're equating, uh, I don't know. All of this has to do with like I guess these kind of timid these timid guys who want to feel like they're in control of the situation. And I, I don't know, even though the, even though a relationship is a constant given, to, if you've ever been in one, you know, like it's a constant kind of give and take. It's like, it's not like you can't reduce it to like, I don't know who, who, if, if you can reduce it to these cartoonish. So it's like, yeah, like their, their philosophy is they always have to be, you always have to be like the dominant position in oral sex. Or you're yeah, a cuck. Yeah, yeah, or you're a cuck. It's it's cartoonish. Well, James O'Meara wrote this book called The Homo and the Negro, but someone should write a book called The, the Kind of Linguist and the Negro. Yeah, yes. Khalid, are you going to do <laughs> well, that? Well, I mean, well, you know, it's also in gay dynamics, it's dom and sub and switch. And switch is your both dom and sub when you feel like it. And so... Oh, when right. you feel like it, switches when you feel. Sometimes you want to be dumb. Sometimes, like, hey, I want to be a sub. Sub, I want it up the butt, you know, or I want it in the mouth. So that's like within gay culture. So, Robert, you should consider the ideology of switch when you feel like you want to be a sub. It's I, kind of like the ideal the of being switch is the radical centrist. Are we right. going to put three emphases around that? <laughs> but 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 I think ultimately too it's also in racial dynamics as well, Robert. I, I'm going to talk to you about this too. So like in gay interracial relationships, you know it's 
kind of weird that uh, you have a white boyfriend and black boyfriend. They both love each other, but then there's a political dynamic. Well, the of, person, okay, yeah, because which which race is the top or the bottom? That kind right. of is like has a political dichotomy of like which ethnicity is dominant. And so, in my opinion, there's something really liberal and inauthentic about a black top and a white bottom because the white bottom does oral to feel white guilt while the black top hates whitey and likes it and gets off to it. But organically and authentically, it's beautiful to have a white top and a black bottom because the black bottom enjoys white culture and the white top appreciates receiving Afro idealism. But that's just taking it to the whole advantage. So I think if liberals have their way and they make everybody the same, they're going to be talking about who's top and who's bottom, even as absurd as in a white guy dating an Asian guy and some tanky DPR tanky. No, I think, no, I'm seriously, I think like using these fetishes, it's like, that's, I mean, obviously the intersectional left talks about these subject matters obsessively, like in queer studies, but like use fetishes as a way to troll both the left and the right. I like that. Kind of like, it's kind of satirical, satirical, kind of silly, but it's something I wrote for the sequel to the oral sex article. But I say like right, so like right wing trad sex acts are monogamy amongst whites with zero zero oral oral sex. So then I would say like white women or white. I would say like white people performing oral sex on black people is inherently is inherently left wing. And I would say like radical centrist sex acts are white white men dating women of color with large age gaps. I guess the gay sex where the whites are the world tops. Well, you got to make it more guilt and ethics. What is ethical and what is unethical? So black top, white bottom is mostly unethical because it goes with liberal culture. It doesn't exactly mean... Well, I would, yeah, I would say this guilt. is... Uh, you know, but I would say like a, bla- a white person performing oral sex on a black person is inherently promoting liberalism. I, I, that's my, that's yeah. my stance. Uh, I think it promotes not just... Li- it's artificial. I would say... The black man doesn't benefit because he hates whitey, and whitey pleases to the black guy, and so nobody learns about each other. But again, if it was a black bottom and white top, that would be more healthier because both parties would benefit, and I think that would benefit racial. Another thing is like I say, or like ugly, ugly people performing it on attractive people is kind of an interesting concept to promote. Kind of like oh, that's that's weird because I remember we were talking with Harlan Venison, and there was I think I might have sent you this. This might have been two years ago. It was porn of a white guy having sex with a black midget, but when what? he was having sex with the black midget, <laughs> what he is was your? Saying, what were you? No, this was two this? years ago. I I have the chat, and then he was. What kind of websites are you on? <laughs> and so the well, point is, I remember the ugly, this: the ugly Aboriginal black woman like we talk about was with a nice normal mid-white guy and it was beautiful because it was a nice guardian for an ugly and so you just you say it. it's like it's like it's the analogy for like a political arrangement based upon like noblesse oblige it's more like aristocratic noble aristoc- yeah of the christian spirit saying, okay, I know you're small, black, aboriginal, and midget, but I still love you, and we're going to have freaky sex, and she likes it, and it's it's arousing. I think that is the arousal there, and most on the right don't understand that. Yeah. 
So it's like going on Twitter. There was a Twitter post of, okay, could you imagine this handsome Aryan so, man? Like the idea, this is, I mean, this is like, this is like radical centrism. So like the idea of like, I, I guess like, so you, you, you have a scenario where like an, an ugly woman or like an average woman will, might perform like, perform that on a Chad. And that's probably, that's probably somewhat common, but like the idea of in of incels performing cunnilingus on Stacy's like that's not realistic but the I think it's interesting is, I think it's interesting to promote kind of like in a, in a symbolic sense because it's like a it's a reversal of hypergamy but it's also promoting kind of interesting arrangements so like I would say I would say that's radical centrism or like I would say that the idea that like, an ugly person receiving oral from like an attractive person is almost satanic, but like, but like reversed is maybe something beautiful because that person who's low status, they're, they're in a submissive position, but they're being like granted access to, they're being granted access to something higher. So that it's an interesting, like political metaphor. Mm. In in the realm of abstract ideas, yeah, uh, yeah. Like I don't I think mean, I know we're, talking, we're talking about this uh, potentially being in practice, but yeah, it's symbolism. Or you're saying it could it could be an interesting practice to promote, like to kind of solve a lot of the like resentment and gender wars and inequality. Well, I think we're both. We both. All of us have kind of. Uh, touched on both prospects no i actually do like i don't know how realistic it is but i think it should it should be encouraged it could be it could be so yeah i'll continue with like my my outline on the politics of world so it's like radical centrist sex acts white males dating women of color color with large age gaps uh, with involving cunnilingus gay sex with white chads as oral tops as radical centrists, cunnilingus involving white stacies and men of color, and incels that are the most subversive are also radical sex radical centrist sex sex white. So rich women receiving from poor men is symbolically neoliberal, but not in practice. So basically, this co- one that was fun. That, it was just uh, when when I read that on the outline, I, I liked it. It's an interesting. So basically, yeah, like co-opt the right wing by empowering white males, co-opt men of color, low status men of color by giving them access to cunnilingus with white stasis, co-opt the feminists by talking about oral sex equity, which I think is subversive because it goes back to that strategy, you co-opt the other side rather than fight them as reactionaries, and then co-opt the neoliberals by promoting poor men going down on rich women. Well, I must say, without at you know at the risk of being braggadocious, I've been able to do okay in a world of sexual anarchy, like a true anarchist. Uh, so you co-opt the, the strategy is co-opt. Find a way to co-opt every single like ideology using like fetish culture. Mm-hmm. The black queens will sniff around. They are very they they do they are interested in white boys. Too, in my experience. What do you think about the angle promoting the angles with like 
incels as sub- subservient to Stacy's as a kind of like reversal on hypergamy, but also a way to troll by promoting it like as feminism, but with oral. Well, the one that resonated with me was the the kind of affluent women with the with, and that whole kind of when you turn that on its head, I thought that was very clever. It's symbolic. You said it's symbolically neoliberal, but it's actually in yeah. principle, it's actually <laughs> subversive. Yes. Yeah. I think that that's interesting to kind of think about. And also the angle of like co-opting co-opting feminism rather than fighting feminism as a reactionary like the manosphere does, like co-opting it to kind of serve different needs and desires, but to co-opt their dialectic. I wouldn't promote me personally. I wouldn't promote such a thing because I think that there is a a pure. Uh, I mean, here's my take on feminism real quick I'm just gonna go into this real quick um, it's been all right and and allow me to use some feminist rhetoric even fine yeah the, the patriarchy you know kind of swept you know the traditional you know when the patriarchy which I would argue is still you know running things when, when they swept kind of women's issues to the wayside, with gay stuff, with kind of gay issues, all you know, just wipe wipe that to the wayside. What they did was they allowed that to kind of like grow into this warped. We get like this kind of shrill feminism. Like some some strains of feminism are real mutated and and very strange. And I would argue that's because well, it's, it's kind constantly of had... mutating from like the first to the second wave, third, and like whatever we are on now. Like now, like me too. Right, right. Well, I think yeah, we're arguably in. I, and a new wave, in... like a new wave of like feminism with like the age gap hysteria, which is more like puritanical. So, like as like switchery, the idea of like, so the idea of like a middle a middle aged man going down on like a college well, woman age... is like subversive. Right. Well, that's very kind of. The switchery. Would you see? You see it's switchery. Right, right. Well, my point is, what I would say is it's been developing in this way, and there is a pure feminist, there is a possibility, at, I, I think there is a there there, I think feminism has a right to exist, I wouldn't, you know, I'm not agreeing with that. you think that there can be like a, a compromise, or you think that in its current form it's a cancer, or you think there's some nuance and compromise? I think there's some... Th- there are strands, strains of feminism that I see no issue with as they exist today. Now, would I want there to be a co- compromise? I don't want there to be eternal kind of war. I mean, but this is also kind of natural in a way. But it's there's not going to it's not going to be like a full compromise. It's just I think it's going to be a continued like back and forth, back and yeah, forth, like is... some some bickering, but some compromise, and that's just how thing, that's just how life works. I think there is a more cooperative way to do things. I mean, there are there are some rad femmes I even speak to, like who I've gotten to know pretty well, and like. And they're weird. Is they're pretty? They're also pretty racist too, like right wing. There's a lot of there is a white nationalist rad femme kind of yeah group yeah yeah, which is an interesting thing too, and that actually came about because these girls came into these 
you know, alt-right spaces, and they came into contact with Fuentes nerds, like, who were just, you know, I don't know. So they almost, like, I think Geo actually was tweeting about this once where... Oh, right. So what do you think about, like, on the thoughts on, like, the whole kind of arrangement as, like, switchery, but also as, like, uh, symbolism, as, like, symbolism, but also, like, how it could be subversive if it were promoted... Symbolically, I, I like it as a thought experiment. That's kind of where I'm at. I mean, like, but, but yeah, there's a possibility for all kinds of things. I mean, this as activism, could you imagine that? I mean, that's also an interesting concept. The incels going down on Stacy's switcheroo concept Stark is proposing, the Starkosphere concept of that uh, is interesting conceptually, certainly. Symbolically is where I'm at. I'm I'm willing to uh, ponder it symbolically at this point. Now, using that as some sort some sort of like activism or like real world thing is kind of the next step when you dream up things. But it's more like avant garde, like a perform. I see it as like a performance art thing, like like not like political activism. But I think it would be a great theme for like a make for a movie, for like an art film. I would like to see that that play out in that way yeah more more so than the real world but yes (laughs) well i would say that sexual acts you're talking about it's a binary meaning there's two people involved a man and a woman or a man or a man or a woman or woman these are two different realities and i think we have to respect the same way we expect that there's a dom a sub or a switch and, and I that, think that actually, ironically, is like, even like with gay, gay culture, like you could say the idea of a dom, you could make the case that that's anti-liberal. Well, yeah, we already talked about this before, but I think the real, what we're addressing is what is it like in that position. So when you're talking about blowjob kings or an oral economy, Think about what does it mean to be a woman and what it means to do the oral and say things like, do you have to swallow sperm? Do you spit out sperm? Or do you just suck and that's it? And as a guy, do you feel selfish doing that? Or what is it like to be a gay guy doing that? These are all questions within gay culture and as well as what you're thinking about and how this ideal kind of forces people to take on a specific role. It's a, it's a subconscious thing as well, but it's also not a permanent thing. I think there's many women that do not like the taste of sperm or kind of fear the ideal that they have to suck a penis and swallow sperm because some popular it, pornography said so. They view it as de- degrading. Right, right. And or I think anti-feminist. We have to respect, have to respect love that. Love changes a lot of this too. I mean, also, I think to... like with another thing is like if someone is ve- I love or someone is very strongly desires another person, people will let down their disgust mechanisms. So like things Absolutely. that otherwise seem very disgusting. I mean, if you think about it, a lot of the th- these these uh, acts, if you think about it, they are they are kind of disgusting, but people will let down their d- disgust mechanisms. Love and lust, both right. are powerful in that regard. I think with the, uh, but I do think with like these like, or like oral acts like. I think like with so if you take like Falladio, 
uh, I think men, a lot of men will just stick their dick in like just about anything, and that's like more kind of R-selected and egalitarian. And then like with the other act, with the other act, it forces them to be much pickier and have standards, which is ironically more right-wing. But I would actually say, like, I think I think it's difficult, but but I actually do think like I actually do think men should be pickier. I can say in my own life I've gone through phases where uh, I guess it fluctuates, but I think I think I'm pretty picky when it comes to a partner. When it comes to a partner, there's got to be something there, and it's inexplicable. Some of it is inexplicable, um, but it kind of happens when it's there. You notice it, but yeah, generally speaking. Um, it would be nice. I guess. To, are are you getting into some eugenic territory here? Almost. It could be. Right. Right. It's yeah. It's an interesting yeah interesting metaphor. Oh, so like it's like some there's like a cast of people who don't reproduce, but they only perform oral. Like that's kind <laughs> that's, of fucked up. Like the new eunuchs, this like new breed of eunuchs. I mean, it's it's kind of. It's kind of sick, but it's an interesting. Like, it's, it would be a great topic for like a science fiction, no, science fiction that's, novel or that, film. That's Cronenbergian. That's actually very kind of like Cronenberg, right there. It reminds me of um, Crash. I mean, Cronenberg didn't write Crash, but yeah. Well, this is a theme in my novel, but also like using it as like a metaphor for like social, social and class disparities is a huge theme in like my novel. Yeah, that's awesome. I that's really cool to me. I, and no, I haven't, I I haven't read uh, Journey to Vapor Island or Vaporfornia, but I I know all I know a lot about it like through Pill Eater, and I've been meaning to buy it. The reason why I held off on buying, like the reason why I don't have it already, is I really wanted the cover which had the Pepe's on it. Oh, and I'm going while, to re. I'm going to re. I'm going to have a new revision at some point that will have that. Good. One That's the, the only reason. Yeah. Okay. I guess like the things we're talking about is like we have like all this like atomization and social problems and like what is like what is the solution? What is the escape? So there's like the solutions to like atomization. One of them is the people who want to restore traditional patriarchy and monogamy. One of them is like this AI utopia slash dystopia where everyone's in VR and having like sex robots and VR sex, but but people are still kind of atomized and it's all an illusion. And then like the third, the third solution is coming up with these weird like fetish mechanisms that do they do grant people intimacy, but in pretty pretty bizarre but also hierarchical ways. So those are like three different, like, paths away from, like, liberal atomization. Yeah. And who knows, like, maybe it could be, like, all three all three of them simultaneously. Right. I think we're going to see um, more rather than less and a lot of things going on at once, like, compounding issues. So when you said maybe all three at once, I'm going to probably opt for that and probably some unseen things that'll creep up on us. That's generally what I see happening with things and a lot of things come out of left field uh, to add to the pile but 
it's hard to predict. It's hard to predict stuff like that. And, you know, it's funny when I look at old movies and stuff and when things, especially in, you know, science fiction, and sometimes I think fantasy does a better job than science fiction at kind of like uh, the future, like, or a distant kind of uh, potential future or other otherworldly place. Um, so it's hard to say. But I think uh, I think a lot of our thinkers and people who are in these spheres are equipped to kind of speculate on a lot of things, and we're kind of in an interesting uh, position to do so. I think by virtue of what we're willing to confront, and when liberal society has a lot of uh, blinders on. I would say there's a common theme of three things you're talking about in that the system is collapsing. I know it sounds like a cliche Chris Hedges speech about the American empire falling, but there is something to point out that this isn't Alex Jones populist versus the globalist argument. It's more of a Tony Negri versus the capital E empire argument in that everybody is mad with a broken economic post-capitalist society where automation doesn't do justice and I don't think will be in the matrix because there's no such thing as robots that can emulate human and it's all just a line of C code. What will happen is like you said that liberalism will implode by what choices you can make whether if it's TikTok subcultures of race change to another, ethnic change to another, or the transhumanism to marry your dog. All these will become plausible and then at the same time, you'll have to ask if the Karens out in Lake Tahoe doing the cha-cha slide at their interracial wedding will have enough of this. Or that, you know, blacks will have another day in Camden, New Jersey being aloof and doing nothing. Or that Asians will keep getting money and having Eurasians. It begs the question when we'll live in a historical um, erasure and then, then the next alpha generation will just wake up not knowing its past. I think as Jay Sereza Giorgiani once said in an esoteric way, Adolf Hitler will be on the dollar bill not because the future is Nazism, but because people thought of him as Genghis Khan because of the historical erasure that's happening as of now. Uh, great show. Uh, before I wrap up, uh, Evie, do you want to plug your YouTube and any other like artistic or other projects that you're working on? Uh, yeah, I mean, my YouTube kind of an inside joke but i'm sure it'll be in the uh in the info somewhere visit it i mean i'm happy to have more people there um maybe i'll work on something uh that takes a little more time in the realm of youtube but uh in terms of artistic projects just working on an upcoming book of poetry more on that later i'll certainly fill you guys in on progress Thanks, Evie and Francis. A great show. Thank you, Robert. Pill eater. Thank you.